Well, good morning and happy New Year's Eve. Like my dad said, my name is Joel and I am a student ministries resident here at the Norton campus. And so I hang out with middle school and high school students on a weekly basis. And I love hanging out with the students, but I also love hanging out with the staff that is here at the church, working alongside of me and student ministries, the volunteers that I get to work with. It's an absolute blast. Uh, I'm also married. I've been married for three years to my lovely wife, Jessica, who you saw up here singing, and we absolutely love the journey of marriage. It has its ups and downs, and uh, it's definitely a journey, but we love doing it together. We also love doing ministry together. So not only does she sing up here during the contemporary services, but you see her over in the hub doing student ministry stuff with middle school, high school students, and so it's an absolute blast being able to do that alongside her. It's crazy that this week was Christmas. Isn't it crazy for anybody else that this week was Christmas and now it's past? Like, it just flies by, right? And I hate that about Christmas. I hate that it just goes right by us. And I love, one of the things I love to do the week after Christmas is go back and look at the gifts that I got Christmas Day. I love to look back at the gifts that I needed. So I got some socks, right? I got some socks this year that I needed, some gifts that I wanted. So you look at the gifts you wanted, you're like really excited about those. And then there's some gifts that are just surprises. Like you have no idea that they're coming. And I got one of those gifts this year. My sister, who I absolutely love, got me an awesome gift, kind of as a confidence booster for this sermon. And so she got me this t-shirt, and it says the Sermonator on it, right? <laughs> Sermonator. It was awesome. I love it. I think I'm going to change my title to the Student Ministry Sermonator now because of that t-shirt. So I absolutely love that she got me that gift. But it's, it's crazy. 2018 is tomorrow. Like this year just flew by, it's tomorrow, and I know for a fact that not only myself, but all of you are hoping for a great year. You're all hoping for a great year, and the reason that I know that is because we're all preoccupied with greatness. We are all preoccupied with greatness. Our culture is addicted to greatness and the pursuit of greatness. Our lives, we're consistently striving to be greater. As I was studying for this sermon and looking into it, there are different phrases that we use in our culture to help us define greatness. And so we're going to kind of walk through those. The first one, the first one is the goat. The goat, the greatest of all time, right? We have different categories. Who or what is the greatest of all time in those categories? So I thought it'd be fun. I know it's New Year's Eve, but I thought it'd be fun to go through some categories and see what you all or who or what all you think is the greatest in those categories, okay? Can we do that? I need a little class participation, right? Class participation, so we're going to yell out a little stuff here. So let's go to the first category. Greatest musicians, okay? So on the count of three, count of three, I want to hear who you think the greatest musician of all time is, okay? Ready? One, two, three. I heard Michael Jackson, yeah. What, what is it? The Beatles, the Beatles, right? The Beatles are the greatest musicians of all time. I got to clap up here. That's according to Rolling Stones, right? Rolling Stones said Beatles are the greatest musicians of all time. What's the next category here? The greatest amusement park. Greatest amusement park. Okay, count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Cedar Point. 100% Cedar Point. And it's actually Disney World, right? <laughs> Most magical place in the world, right? You got characters, you got all the fun down there, Magic Kingdom, it's a blast. What about the next one? The greatest vacation spot. Greatest vacation spot, one, two, three. Yep, didn't hear a single thing, but it's Rome, Italy. Rome, Italy is the greatest. This is all according to Google. 
okay? So it's legit, right? It's good, right? You got the buildings, you got the history, the food, greatest vacation spot to go to. I've not been there yet, but hope to one day. Next, greatest basketball player of all time, right? This is where the GOAT comes from. Greatest basketball player of all time, one, two, three. All LeBron, and that is... Crazy, Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan, I never got to see him play in his prime time, but greatest basketball, that's very opinionated, right? What's the next category? The greatest college football program of all time, okay? I want to hear it. One, two, three. Ohio State. Ohio State would be incorrect. What is it? It's Penn State. I had to, I had to have a little fun with you all. All my Ohio State friends, I had to learn how to have fun. Look at the reference, too. It's legit. JoelGregory.com. So it's all good, right? Hey, but we have the GOAT, and then we have another phrase, strive for greatness. Now, LeBron James kind of came up with this phrase, and he uses this. He might post on Twitter, Instagram, and he'll use this phrase after those posts. And basically what he's doing, he's defining in words what we do every day. It got me thinking, and I remember a time when I was a junior in high school. I was a junior in high school, and I played football, and it was the springtime, and so we were going into lifting and conditioning, getting ready for summer workouts. So this particular day, we're going into lifting after school, and it happened to be a max lift day. Basically, what that means is you throw as much weight onto the bar as you think you can handle and try to do one rep of it, and that would be your max. So that day, we walk into the weight room, we learn what the lifts are. One of the lifts is a box squat. Box squat, basically, you get the bars on your shoulder, you go down, you squat, you come back up, you re-rack it. And so I'm calculating what I'm supposed to do for the box squat because I want to achieve this greatness off the field so that I'm bigger, faster, stronger on the field, right? So I'm calculating, calculating, and I calculated, I kid you not, that my max box squat weight was 450 pounds, 450 pounds. Look at me, I'm 140 pounds, soaking wet, okay? It's crazy to think, but I calculated it. I calculated, my coaches didn't stop me. I threw it on the bar, I've never seen so much weight on the bar. I got under there, I'm getting pumped up, you know, all the guys are slapping me, they're like, come on, come on, come on, come on. So I get under the bar, I lift up, I step back, And wouldn't you know it, the 450 pounds fell right off my shoulder, took my wrist with it, broke my wrist, fell to the ground, crash, bang, boom. Everybody turned and looked at me. I was like, oh, dang it. In my frustration, I turned around, looked for the nearest bench, and with my good hand, I went up and I punched it because I was so angry. I would not ever recommend doing that. But what I was trying to do, what I was trying to do was strive for greatness. And what I was doing with lifting that weight, we all do every day. We are all striving for greatness. We're all striving to be dominant, to be superior, to be recognized. What happens more times than not is it leaves us feeling empty or unsatisfied. We're chasing, chasing, chasing. We're hoping to get this promotion. We're hoping to pass this person, right? Even when we do that, it's like, well, there's always more. And ultimately, we have an inaccurate view of, de- or of greatness. We have a wrong definition of greatness. Right? Jesus' disciples, funny enough, they, they were just as preoccupied with greatness as we are. 
They're just as preoccupied with greatness as we are. We see in Mark 10, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem with his disciples. He's traveling to Jerusalem with his disciples. And while they're traveling to Jerusalem, he kind of pulls them aside. He pulls them to the side of the road. He has a little team huddle with his disciples. And Jesus goes on to tell them what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He goes on to say to them, hey, we get into Jerusalem. We enter Jerusalem there's going to be some religious leaders, and they don't like what I'm teaching and what I'm doing. So they're going to take me into custody. They're going to throw me in front of some judges. They're going to throw me into some judges, and those judges, they're going to wrongfully convict me. They're going to put me on the death penalty, a death sentence. Those judges, they're going to hand me over to the Romans. The Romans, they're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to flog me. And then they're going to throw me on a cross. They're going to throw me on a cross, and I'm going to die on that cross. But three days later, I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to rise again. He has this emotional outpouring to them. Like, this is what's going to happen. Like, there's no funny business going in Jerusalem. This is what's going to take place, the suffering. And there are certain ways that you respond to situations and conversations like that in certain ways you don't. You might have had conversations like that. There's certain ways that you hope people respond in certain ways that they shouldn't respond. There's certain ways that are very inconsiderate, rude, right? They're not even caring about it. Enter the disciples. Jesus gets done talking to them about what is going to happen, and they go along their way to Jerusalem. And two of Jesus' disciples kind of sneak up by him and stand by him. The other ten, they're kind of, I can imagine, moseying along, you know, behind them all. But James and John, they got right next to Jesus. And this is what they say. That Jesus, teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What? Like after Jesus just opens up to you about what is going to take place in Jerusalem, that's what you tell Jesus? Like how much more inconsiderate, rude, uncaring can that be? Now if I was Jesus, I would have responded just a little differently than he responded. Jesus is so gracious and loving, he ends up asking them a question. He says, "What, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you guys? He wants to get to the deeper issue. What's going on? And so James and John, they proceed to tell Jesus, hey, this is what we want you to do. Say, we want to sit one on the left, one on the right, when you come in glory. Basically, what they were saying is, we want to sit on left and right when you make it to the top, when you get to the throne, when you become the greatest. They had a misconceived idea of what Jesus was going to do in Jerusalem. They thought... All the disciples thought that Jesus was going to enter Jerusalem and take it back from the Romans. Like the Romans are in control. And so like, yeah, Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, he's going to walk into Jerusalem. He's going to take over the kingdom. He's going to give it back to the Jews. Everybody's going to be happy. He's going to take the throne. And we want to make sure that we're on the left and right when everybody sees that take place. We want to make sure we're sitting right there. They thought greatness was in power and position. So they wanted to sit right next. Basically, You think about it like this. They were calling shotgun on Jesus' throne. They were calling shotgun on Jesus' throne. They wanted to be the triple threat, the next two in charge. They wanted to make sure everybody knew who they were. Jesus, hearing this, he says, you have no idea what you're asking for. You have no idea what you're asking for. You think greatness comes in being on top, getting the throne, ruling the kingdom. He said, no, no, no. You'll find out that greatness, greatness is seen when I die on the cross for everybody's sins. Listen, Jesus had this upside-down view 
of greatness, like this countercultural view to our world of what greatness is. And so he kind of tells them, hey, no, 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 you have this misconceived idea. And then he asks him a question, kind of a weird question to us. And it's like weird. He says, can you drink out of the same cup I drink out of? Can you go through the same baptism that I go through? It's weird to us, but basically he's asking, can you go through the suffering that I'm about to go through? Can you go through the suffering, the torment, what's going to take place on the cross? Can you go through that? Disciples are like, James and John are like, yep, we can. Yep, we can. And Jesus says, yeah, one day you're going to face that. One day you're going to face suffering for my name. One day you're going to die. He says, these places of honor that you ask for, these places of honor, it's not my job. It's not my authority to give those to you. It's God's. That he's got people in place that he wants to give those to. He kind of bursts their bubble. Hey, you're not going to get those spots probably. Like, it's not going to happen. Now, he's having this conversation. There are 10 other guys kind of trekking along. As the conversation goes on, they're kind of listening in, kind of hearing where the conversation is going, kind of hearing how it's taking place. And it says that they become indignant because of what James and John were asking. They're upset. Heck yes, I'd be upset. These two guys asking for the seats right and left to Jesus. Like if I was the other disciples, I'd be like, when do I get my chance to put out my resume for why I should be next to Jesus? What, like we chop liver? Where, where are we going to sit? Like shouldn't I have a chance to tell you why I should be next to Jesus? And we see Jesus. He sees this all taking place. He pulls them together and has this conversation starting in verse 42 is where we're going to pick up. Verse 42, this is what Jesus says. He has called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has a totally different definition of greatness. So what is it? If you're writing in your notes, write this first point down. True greatness, true greatness starts with who I am, not what I do. True greatness starts with who I am, not what I do. You see Jesus in verse 43 says this, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Jesus starts by saying, greatness is about being a servant. That's like, what? What to what? Like, the world defines greatness totally differently. Defines it totally differently. Greatness is found in what you do. Greatness is found in what you've accomplished. Greatness is found in how high on the ladder you've gotten, what the promotion looks like. And Jesus totally twists that. He said, no, 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 you have it totally wrong. It's upside down. Like, if you want to be great, your identity should be a servant. It should be in that of a servant. Your identity as a servant should come from understanding who you are in Jesus. Often we can look at our accomplishments. We can look at what we do. What's my life made up? And that's where we get our identity. Like, yeah, I've done that. Jesus is like, no, no, no. You need to look at me. Look at who I am and what I've done for you. And that's where you gain your identity. That's where your identity should come from. This might be worth writing down. It's not on your notes. When we understand our identity, our identity as a servant, we can start striving from greatness, not striving for greatness. 
Oftentimes in life, we're striving, we're going, we're going, we're going. We're hoping that we can get to greatness, get to the finish line. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Strive from the greatness of who I am and what I've done for you. That's where you pull your identity. That's where you pull being a servant. That's where you pull greatness and the definition of greatness. Now listen, Jesus didn't say, if you want to be great, serve. It's interesting. He didn't say, if you want to be great, go serve. Be a servant. Oftentimes, in our heads, this idea of like, oh, yeah, he wants me to be great, then I'll just go serve. Let's go get some chairs, get this, I'll rock and roll, we'll be good. Oftentimes, that leads us to look around and say, who's watching? Or what's the situation look like? Will people recognize that I'm serving? People make sure that they know that I'm the one helping out? And oftentimes, looks back at me and, and serving and what am I doing, but in serving that way, listen, in serving that way, you can feel so guilt-driven, like, Jesus, oh yeah, that's what he wants me to do, and it fizzles out just like that. If you put your identity and your character in being a servant, it doesn't matter the situation, it doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter where you're at, it becomes an opportunity to serve. Becomes an opportunity to serve. Every relationship, every situation gives you an opportunity to serve, whether it benefits you or not. So we see Jesus, he says, if you want to be great, true greatness comes from understanding who you are, not what you do. Right? When you know who you are, you'll know what to do. Come back for the next four weeks of this series. We're going to talk about that. When you know who you are, you'll know what to do. This might be worth writing down. A servant is an identity to embrace, not just an achievement to accomplish. Right? Bear hug that identity. Bear hug it. It's not just an accomplishment we get through. We see Jesus said true greatness is not about what I do. It's about who I am. But he says, secondly, true greatness focuses on others. True greatness focuses on others. And in verse 44, we see Jesus says this, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Oftentimes, oftentimes, how we define greatness, our worldly greatness and how we define it, it's all about me, 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 me. And it's all about us. How can I get ahead? How can I get the promotion? How can I do this so that I make sure I'm in a good place? It happens to be about me. And we see Jesus in verse 44. He says, no, no, no. You be slave to all. It like turns it on its head. No, no, be a slave to all. Think about this. Think about this. Oftentimes we walk into a room. Oftentimes we walk into a room and this is what we think. What do others think of me? What do others think of me? That's false greatness. It's like, oh, I wonder if they like my shoes or they like my dress or they like this or oh, I wonder what they think about me. True greatness, this is true greatness. This is what it says. What do others need from me? What do others need from me? When I walk into a room, it's no longer about myself. Oh, are they looking? No, no. Who can I serve? Who can I help? Who can I elevate? your servant, your identity becomes something that you serve out of and you serve others. You look to others and say, they might need my help. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. If we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. That's interesting. 
the thing we remember from meeting a truly gospel, humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. When I walk into a room, it's no longer, oh, look at me, look at what I've done, look what I've accomplished. And it's no longer, woe is me, and I'm just junk. I'm, it's looking to others. How can I help them? How can it be all about that person? How can it be focused and fixated on others? That's interesting. We can stop at others. I think Jesus uses a word for a specific reason. He uses the word all. All. And he means all by that. Oftentimes we can walk into a room and we can look for people to serve. Oh, I know that person. Oh, they have that in common with me. Oh, they can benefit me. We miss out on the opportunities to serve those who are less fortunate, who are helpless. What if we walked into a room and maybe there's people that don't have the same social status, financial status, aren't the same race, right? don't have the same culture, and we looked and said, how can we serve them? Everybody. Everybody. Not just the people I know, not just the people like me, but all. We become fixated on others. We become fixated on all. So Jesus tells us first, it's not true greatness. It's not about what I do. It's about who I am. It's all about who I am, my identity. And it's focused on others. And then lastly, this is what he says. The gospel is the picture of true greatness. The gospel is the picture of true greatness. In verse 45, it's what Jesus says, for even the son did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, Jesus came down to this earth not to serve but to serve is shocking. He's the son of God, God in flesh. And instead of saying, you know what, I'm God, you should all serve me. He said, no, 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 no. I wanna walk around and everybody I come in contact with, I'm gonna be a servant towards. I'm going to look for ways to serve, ultimately to death on a cross to serve us all. Made me think of a situation that me and my wife were in a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, me and my wife were getting ready to go on vacation to Georgia. We got a cabin down in the Georgia mountains. We were super excited, be over our anniversary, and so we were stoked to head out. And Monday morning, got all packed up. We headed out to Georgia, which is about a nine-hour drive. We drove down there, and so we made our way through Ohio, which is a lot longer than I ever remember. We made our way through Kentucky, got to Tennessee. Tennessee, we stopped for some dinner, got back on the road. About 6, 6.15 comes, it's dark out, we're in the mountains of Tennessee now, just winding, winding up and down. We learned later, the road we were on was nicknamed the Dragon Tail, so we're just winding and up and down, it's just craziness. And so we come up near a bridge, we're kind of going around a curve onto the bridge, and my headlights hit something in the middle of the road. My wife, Jessica, says, hey, there's something in the middle of the road. And it was just too quick, too fast. We couldn't swerve. We ran over this thing in the middle of the road, and it absolutely destroyed the underneath of our car. It just, I was like, oh, hot dang, this is not good, not good at all. So I looked at my wife, and I said, maybe, just maybe, everything will be okay. We drive for another 10 seconds, and I tell you what, the worst noise that I've ever heard came out of our car. It sounded like there was a giant hole in the muffler. Started to smell things, smoke, it was all bad. So in the mountains of Tennessee, 
It's completely dark out. We pull to the side of the road. Pull to the side of the road, put some flashers on. We look underneath the car. Yep, there's something dangling there. We get back in the car, and I look at my phone. No cell service, okay? So there's no cell service. It is dark out. Our car is undrivable, and we're just chilling there. And I look at my wife, and all husbands do this. Don't lie to yourself. I looked at my wife, and I said, everything is going to be okay. And inside my brain, I said to myself, everything is not going to be okay. This is a terrible situation. This is awful. I don't know if we're going to get out of it. There's bears. We might be eaten. I don't know what's going to happen. So as I was telling her that, I was thinking this. We prayed. We came up with a decision. We just got to have to flag down someone so that we can get a ride. And so we see a car coming. We're like, okay, this is our chance. So I get out of the car, and I do some jumping jacks. I'm flagging down this guy. I'm like, huh? And he stops, pulls around. I go up to the car, and I say, hey, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. We're broke down. He's like, oh, okay, yeah. I will come back. I'm delivering some puppies down the road. I will come back. I'll pick you up. We'll get you where you need to go. I'm like, great. That's awesome. He leaves. I get back in the car. I get back in the car. I tell Jess, hey, He said maybe no more than an hour. We'll just chill here. We'll make sure everything's okay. So we had the heat going. The lights are going. Fine. We got a flashlight, a knife, just in case. Everything's good. Half hour goes by. Okay, we're still good. Hour goes by. Okay, he hasn't come back yet. Hour and a half goes by. There's no more heat. So no more heat, and the guy hasn't gotten back yet. Two hours go by. The lights are almost dead, just going. No more heat. Two and a half hours, no more heat, no more lights. It's just us in the cold in the mountains of Tennessee with no cell service, and this guy has not come back. So my wife looks at me and says, so now what? What are you going to do? I don't know. And so we come up with this plan. We just got to flag someone else down. We got to get to help. It's about 9 o'clock now. I have no, we're just completely helpless and hopeless at this point. So the next guy. So see a car coming up behind us. Okay. This is our chance. So I get out of the car. I'm honking the horn. I got the flashlight. I'm doing jumping jacks again. He stops. He stops. I go up to the truck. It was a nice young man. He said, what's going on? I told him the situation. We're broken down. We got to get somewhere. He's like, hey, I can give you a ride. I can ride right now. Take you to the nearest town that has things that will help you out. So I'm like, okay, let me go talk to my wife. Because it is quite sketchy to uh, hop into someone's car that you have no idea in the mountains of Tennessee. It's quite sketchy. So I made sure it was okay with her. We hopped into the truck. This guy took us about a half hour away to North Carolina. We got a tow truck, got a hotel, a tow truck, bought the car. Car got fixed. We went on with our vacation. But I tell you what, I did not look at cars on the side of the road the same the rest of that trip or even to this point. Like totally changed how I saw that. And as I was thinking about this story, as I was thinking about this story, I thought of all of us. I thought of all of us in our spiritual lives. Because all of us at one point or another, maybe even today, are on the side of the road, completely dead in our sin, with no cell service. We're all completely helpless and hopeless on the side of the road because of our sin. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus came driving into our world came driving into our world and lived a life to serve others. The servant who served others eventually to the point of dying on the cross for us, for our sins. He said, if you believe in me, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life and life on this earth with purpose and meaning. So you see, the gospel should motivate me to be a servant. But how? 
There's two things. Write down. Two things, how the gospel motivates me to be a servant. The first one is, I need to see what Jesus did for me. I need to see what Jesus did for me. We need to see ourselves in our sin just like me and Jess were on the side of the road in Tennessee. Completely helpless, hopeless, our car's dead, no cell service. That's exactly how we are in our sin. We're completely helpless. We're completely hopeless. When this guy stopped by to help us out, I was like, man, this guy's such a great guy. This guy's awesome. I can't believe that he would stop and go out of his way. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. When you see how helpless and hopeless you are in your sin on the side of the road, comparative to how great it was that Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, came down to this earth to be a servant to us, all the way to dying for us? Like, really? If you compare those things, then you'll start to see what the gospel is all about. Then you'll start to see exactly what Jesus did for us and the price that he paid at all costs to him. And you just believe in me. Believe in me. You'll have life. The first thing is, I need to see what Jesus did for me. The second thing is, I need to continually be reminded of the gospel. I need to continually be reminded of the gospel. This reminded me of a quote by Jerry Bridges. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Listen, as I was traveling back from Georgia, cars on the side of the road looked completely different to me. Like, I thought about the situation they might be in. Maybe they're hopeless and helpless like I was. Because of that experience, I don't look at cars on the side of the road the same. That's exactly how we need to look at the gospel. Every day, I need to look at the gospel and say, wow, I can't believe what Jesus did for me. I can't believe in my most helpless and hopeless state of sin, whatever that may be, like, he would come down and help me. It's not just a Sunday thing. Sometimes we come in Sunday church, we're like, yeah, gospel. Yeah, we'll be reminded here. Sermons. No, no, it's not even just an Easter thing. Like we hear the gospel message. It's an everyday thing where you wake up and remind yourself of where you were and what Jesus did for you. We see two things. Two things. See that I need to see what Jesus did for me. I need to continually be reminded of the gospel. Now, as we close, I'm going to have the band come out. As we close, I'm going to have the band come out. And honestly, I want you to have the greatest year ever. I want this year to be greater than all other years that you've had. And for some of you, for some of you, that means saying yes to Jesus for the first time. Some of you, that's, that means saying yes to Jesus for the first time. That means seeing yourself for the first time dead in your sin, completely helpless and hopeless on the side of the road. So that means understanding, oh, that's where I'm at. I, I don't know what sin it is. I don't know all your stories. Some of you are there. Some of you are there where you're like, I have nowhere to go. No idea what to do. Like Help? Like, I don't even know where to get help from. I just know I'm in this sin and something's not right. And Jesus, listen, today... Jesus is driving by. Jesus is driving by. He's saying, get in. Hop in. I want to help you out. Like, wouldn't it have been crazy for me and Jess to tell this young man, no, 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 we don't need your help. We'll be fine. 
Like, we're, we're okay out here. The car doesn't work. It's dead. We have nothing. We'll be fine. It's been crazy. It's just as crazy to say, no, no, Jesus, I'll be fine. Like, I can, I can handle it. My, I got my sin. I'll, it's okay. But today, for some of you, it's just saying yes to Jesus. Yes, I'll, I'll hop into the car. Yes, I'll say yes to you. Say yes to what you've done for me. Died on the cross for us. Died on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Believing in him is the only way to eternal life. Not just that, but have a life with meaning, with purpose, with passion. So some of you, starting this new year to make it great, hop into Jesus' car. Hop into his car. Say yes to him. For others of you, for others of you, make it a great year to stop pursuing false greatness. Start pursuing true greatness. Stop pursuing what the world says is great. Just striving for, I can, I can do it, I can do it. And start pursuing true greatness. What Jesus defines as true greatness. So husbands, what would it mean for you this year? Starting 2018, what would it mean for you to be a servant to your wife? What would it mean for you to not just serve her? Oh, I gotta do what she tells me. I guess she asked, I gotta do this. And what would it mean if you just walked into the house and you're like, I'm looking for ways to serve my wife because I've been served by Jesus. So I want to have the identity of a servant pursuing that. What would it look like if your kids, if your family saw that happen? They walked in and saw dad serving mom. You didn't even have to get asked. Just being a servant. Wives, what, what would it look like if you did the same thing for your husbands? like, oh, he's home, and I guess i got to help him out and do this. What if you were engaged him, welcoming you home, serving him? Maybe you looked for ways to be a servant in your house for your kids, for your families. What does that mean for you this year? What about your workplaces? When we go into work and it's eight to five and we can get it done, or i got to get the promotion, the raise. What if this year you walked into your work 2018, you looked at everybody you worked with and said, those are opportunities to serve. Every single person I work with is an opportunity to serve. What would it, what would it mean, even the person that's hard to work with? We all got those people. What would it mean to be a servant to all at your workplace? Not look at the outside, not look at the social status, but to say, I want to be a servant to them because they need help, they need to be elevated. They need to be served so that they can see Jesus. Not just to serve, so they could see the gospel and see what it means to be a servant, what Jesus has done for us. Students, students, I work with you often. I love it. But what would it mean, middle school, high school, college, young adults, for you to walk into your campuses, walk into your schools and say, I'm going to be a servant. Not walk around the halls and say, oh, I wonder what she's thinking of me. I wonder what he's thinking of me. Oh my, I don't know what's... What if you walked in and said, what can I do for others? What do they need from me? Look for ways to serve the kid that has no friends. Way to be a servant to the kid that's on the side of the road. There's just no help. What do it mean this year, school year, to be that servant in your schools so that you're friends 
see what the gospel is actually all about. And what if we ran in 2018? We make these New Year's resolutions, which are great. Keep doing it. What if one of our resolutions was to be a servant who serves so others see who Jesus is? A servant who serves, who's actively serving others understand the gospel is all about. What if? What if you did that this year, 2018? Started it. Father, we thank you so much for who you are and all that you do. We thank you for your love for us, your grace for us. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you for 2,000 years ago, he came driving into this world, driving into this world and lived a life to servant, to serve others, so that we could see what it's like. Serve us to death, even death on a cross. God, I, I pray for those here today that haven't said yes to you, haven't said yes to the ride. They're on the side of the road right now. Car's dead, no cell service, completely helpless, completely hopeless. And I pray for people at that point. I pray they would see Jesus. I pray your will would be done today and for some of their lives to just be completely flipped. I pray for others as they're running into this year and I pray that they'd run into it with an upside down thought of what pursuing greatness and striving for greatness is all about. It's about being a servant instead of being served. God, we thank you for all that you do for us. We thank you for today. Let's pray this in your name. Amen.